So um, once upon a time, a, a while ago, I used to work for a charity. And uh, one of the things that uh, the charity did, one of the fundraising things that we did was one of those bike rides, you know, the sort of deal where everyone goes and rides. It's usually a fairly challenging route. You know, it's a long route. People ride and then they get their friends and, and neighbours and workmates and whatever to sponsor them, you know, to complete the challenge. And, uh, and we raised funds. It was, a, it was a brilliant thing, raised a, a lot of money that went to, went to really good needs. But one of the things that the organisation that I was a part of, one of the things that we did is that each year we had a, like a, a celebrity team that kind of led the ride. So ordinary people. Um, but uh, you know the way it is, you know, a, a newsreader or a footballer or someone like that who would join the team as a, a bit of a figurehead, a bit of an encouragement, and, you know, people could get out and ride with these sort of semi-famous people. So this one year... Um, we managed through, I don't know, someone had a friend of a friend or whatever, we managed to convince the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in South Australia to ride for us, right? Big deal. And um, so he was going to be part of the team. I'd never met the guy or whatever. I don't spend much time in the Supreme Court, thank God. And uh, anyway, he was going to ride for us. And one of the things that we did with this team is um, we made little uh, branded cycling kit, you know, the jerseys and the things that people wear with the name of the charity and the name of the ride and whatever, and, and people would buy those and whatever. But we would give uh, a set, we would give a set of the, the gear to these celebrities, you know, to encourage them to wear them and whatever. So the kit comes in and we sort it out and we know people's sizes and whatever and, and, and someone in the office says, hey, um, oh, we've got uh, the Chief Justices you know, here in this bag. Can someone drop it? And I'm like, hey, I'm going out. I'll drop it to the Supreme Court. So I go out. Um, I find a park. It's right in town in, in Goodger Street. If you don't know, one of those massive, big old stone buildings, really big, imposing building. I get a park and I wander into the front door of the Supreme Court. Now, if you haven't been into the Supreme Court, you can't go in there anymore. You used to once, but now when you go in there, there's armed security guards and uh, big barricades and stuff like that, and you've got to go through security checks and whatever. And I walk in, uh, and I put my bag on the counter, and I say, "Hey." I've got a delivery for the Chief Justice, right? And it's only at that moment, now this will sound silly when I say, it's only at that moment that I realise that they've taken the kit and they've just put it in a brown paper bag and rolled it up, right? So I've walked into the Supreme Court, put a brown paper bag on the counter and said, this is for the Chief Justice, right? And these two armed security guards look at me like, Dude, that's not how it works here. <laughs> you know, we don't just give random brown paper bags to the Chief Justice. And it's only at that moment that I realised that, that I thought this was a good news thing. You know, hey, here's his cycling kit and whatever. To them, I look like a terrorist, right? <laughs> what I thought was really good news turned into kind of not so good news. It all turned out okay. I opened the bag and showed them it was cycling kit, explained that I was with the charity and whatever, and they smiled sweetly and put their guns away and, you know... <laughs> We had a laugh and it was okay, he got his kit and whatever. But I wonder if you've ever felt like that in your life. You've had a moment where something that you thought was really good news, that you thought was going to go really well, that you thought would be received really well, and then in the moment you realise it's really not good news for the other person. They don't really like this idea at all. They're not really receiving this the way I want to give it. You know what I'm talking about? Um, we're starting a short series on sharing our faith. For many of us, sharing our faith feels a little bit like me delivering that cycling kit to the Supreme Court. 
you know, what is supposed to be good news to us uh, feels like anything else to the person we're giving it to. Do you know what I'm saying? What we think is good news feels like a bomb in a brown paper bag to the person receiving it. And I know that as soon as I start to talk about sharing your faith, there'll be a range of different sort of feelings and opinions in the room. Now, there are some people in the room who are like, great, I really, I, I'm really, I really want to talk about this. I want to learn more about this. And I can actually, that's why we're doing this series. Um, this is uh, like a sort of by popular demand. You know, a, Syria, a couple of people have come and said, hey, could we really talk about this? We'd, we'd like to dig into this. So, um, you know, we'd kind of like this is a series with us saying, yeah, yeah, let's talk about that. So I know some of you think this is great. There are others of you who are like, hmm, I don't know about this stuff. I mean, like, I get that it's a good idea. I like that other people do it, but it's a bit awkward for me. I don't, I don't know what to say. I'm scared by the idea of doing it. I just, that whole faith sharing thing, you know, I don't like to admit it, but uh, it's not really for me. And then there's others of you who are much more certain than that. As soon as someone talks about sharing the faith, you're, you're like, and you don't say this maybe out loud, but internally you're like, uh-uh. Definitely not doing that. And if you're really honest with yourself, you're probably saying, you know, I'm actually not convinced that this whole God stuff is real. I'm sure as heck not going to try and convince someone else that it is. You know what I'm saying? And I want to say that whatever you're thinking right now, whatever your first response is when I talk about sharing your faith, it's okay. It's fine. I totally understand. And if you were to stand up here and explain to us why you feel that way, it would make perfect Sense. We would say, yeah, if I were in your shoes, if I'd have experienced sharing faith the way that you had, if I had thoughts about it, if I knew the Bible the way that you do or you don't do, it would make perfect sense to me. I get it. So for those of you who really want to share your faith, this series is going to be super practical, super, super practical. As practical as we make it, we're going to talk today about why we share our faith. And the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about what is the good news that we're actually sharing. When we're saying we're sharing the good news of Jesus, what are we actually sharing about Jesus? We're going to talk really specifically about that. And we're going to talk about how we do it. What sort of words we use, how we practically do it. We're going to, this is going to be uh, pretty interactive, so I can prepare you for that for the next couple of weeks. For those of you who think that sharing faith is a bit scary or a bit awkward, I hope that this series will give you an understanding of particularly the why that as Christian people we do this, but also give you some practical ideas that, I don't know, maybe you just might want to try even just a little bit. My hope is that for some of us, we might leave, we might come out of the end of this series thinking, you know what, maybe I could give, I could give that just a little go. I could just sort of put a toe in the water and explore this idea. And for those of you who are sure that this is absolutely, absolutely not for you, then I hope that this series will give you an understanding of why faith is worth sharing. You know, why as a church we say this is something that we... I mean, why are we talking about this in the first place? Why is this something that the church wants to share with the world? But today we're going to begin with the why. And to answer the why question, we have to go right back to the very beginning. And when I mean the very beginning, I mean like the actual beginning. If you've got a Bible, um, it's the book of Genesis, uh, literally the first book in your Bible, and actually the very first page in the first book in your Bible. 
Because Genesis begins with a world that is full of emptiness and disorder and chaos. Genesis 1.1 says the earth was formless and empty. Some Bibles say formless and desolate, words like wild and waste in other translations. But the idea is that there is chaos and disorder over the surface of the world. And into this chaos and disorder, God speaks. He speaks light and life and order. He speaks into existence. He speaks into order everything that we see in the world around us. We often talk about this as the creation story, the the moment, the process by which God creates all that we see in the world around us. And creation finishes the grand finale of creation, the the kind of ta-da moment where the spotlights focus in on God's greatest achievement. You know what the grand achievement of creation is? It's you. It's us. It's, It's humanity. Creation finishes with people and God living together in perfect unity. There's no evil, there's no sin, there's no death, there's no hate, there's no violence, there's no war. It's a beautiful and an awesome picture of the way the world originally was. And we believe the way the world could be again. It's a beautiful picture that lasts for two chapters. Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Because in Genesis chapter 3, people who were Adam and Eve at the time, people decide to go their own way. They decide that actually this great picture, living life God's way, they don't want to live life God's way. They want to take control of their own life. They want to do things their way. They want to decide what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad. And so they rebel against God's way of doing things and they say, we're going to do things our own way. Or at least they try to. Because anyone who knows this story at all knows that it's a total mess. Greed and hate and violence and death enter the world. And if you read Genesis chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 all the way through Genesis chapter 11, it just seems to get worse and worse and worse. And generation after generation and, 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 you know, son after son and grandson after son. And it's just a horrible picture of the way that the world is headed. And then in Genesis chapter 12, God hatches a plan to save the world. And he begins with one person. He chooses one man, the man of Abraham. You know the old song, Father Abraham? It's that guy. (laughs) Genesis 12, I'm just going to read the first couple of verses. The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Leave everything you know, he's saying. I'm about to do something brand new in you. Leave everything you know. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. At the moment, he has a wife and no kids, right? But I'm going to make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. We talk about repeated words, the way the Bible writers use. What's the repeated word there? Bless, 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 bless. I'm going to do something through you. I'm going to take you from where you are, take you to something brand new, and out of that will come blessing. 
This is the beginning of God's grand plan to save the world from self-destruction. And it begins with one man. Do you notice the last line there? All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. The whole world. And the rest of the Old Testament part of our Bible, which is, which is the most part of our Bible, the rest of the Old Testament part of our Bible is a story of waiting for that blessing to come to fullness. Abraham has a son. That son has kids and they have kids. And, and Abraham's descendants do turn in to a whole nation, literally millions and millions of them. We call them the nation of Israel. It's the Jewish nation today. But they don't bless the whole world. In fact, they're a mess. Instead of, being a, like, instead of being a conduit or a pipeline for God's blessing to come into the whole world, they actually go back and in a cyclical way just repeat the sin of Adam and Eve. It's like generation after generation over and over and over again, they turn their back on God and they choose to do life their way. And all the Old Testament is this sort of repeating pattern of God blessing his people, doing good things amongst them. And just at the point where they could be a blessing to the world, they go, no, we're just going to do things our way. We've got a better idea. And it all goes back to you know what, and the cycle just seems to start again and again and again. And the whole of the Old Testament is a sad long search for someone, just someone who will stop the rot and fix the mess. Someone who will bring this blessing of God to the world. Someone who will save the world from the mess that it's in. And every now and then some good candidates show up. People like Moses and Joshua, Samson, Saul, David, Daniel. You might have heard of some of those names. It doesn't matter if you haven't, but, but some of those names, you're like, oh, I've heard of some of those guys. But they all fail. Every one of them, just at the point where you think, this guy could be the one. He turns out not to be the one. And he repeats that same pattern of doing things on his own, of falling back into that sin of saying, you know what, I've got a better plan for my life than God. Now, that all might sound like a bunch of sort of old Bible trivia to you. Maybe you've never even heard of a bunch of those people. Uh, Maybe you don't know those stories. But here's what you need to understand. 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, in Bible times... Everyone knew those stories. Right? That story of Abraham, that story of, of him and his son and his grandson and, and, and you know those hopes and those dreams, they were like they were like Cinderella and Father Christmas today, right? Everyone knew those stories. You know, Disney made a new version every single year of the same story. You know, they were stories that you couldn't even remember the first time you heard the stories. You just knew those stories. Everyone knew those stories. And every kid grew up hoping that they might be the generation who would see the one come. Every kid grew up hoping that they might see that ultimate blessing come. They might see that fix. They might see that sort of that saviour of the world appear in their generation. And then 2,000 years after Abraham, more than that, on a quiet night in Bethlehem, there's a group of poor shepherds up on a hill, minding their own business, doing what shepherds do, hanging out. 
and a light appears in the sky and an angel appears to them. Luke investigated it all, got the words from the shepherds. Years later, Luke chapter 2, verse 10, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Great joy for all people. That's the Abraham promise from 2,000 years ago. Can you hear that? Oh, bless all people. He's, he's riffing, the, the angel's riffing off that. I'll bring great, and he says, a, a Messiah is coming. Messiah, we don't use the word uh, Messiah much, but, but Messiah means the chosen one. Literally means like the anointed one. This is the one, Messiah is the one that everyone's been waiting for, right? Now again, we don't, but every kid in that day knew the word Messiah. Luke wants you to know at the very beginning of his biography of the life of Jesus. This is Luke chapter 2. This is right up front. Luke wants you to know that he believes that Jesus is the one that the world has been waiting for for thousands and thousands of years. He's being absolutely clear about that. And that might just kind of seem like, oh, kind of old Bible talks for you. But for for people 2,000 years ago when they read this, It's like, wow, we understand the point that Luke's trying to make when he says that. Luke's making the point that Jesus is the chosen one who will fix the mess that the world is in. Jesus is the chosen one who will fix the mess that my life is in. Jesus is the chosen one come to fix the mess that your life is in. Jesus will save the world, as my children like to say, literally. But in this case, actually, literally, right? (laughs) And Matthew and Mark and John, when when they write a biography of Jesus, they're going to say pretty much the same thing. John will say in John 1.29, right at the beginning of his story, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And like the Spirit of God comes on and gives him some sort of word of of knowledge of prophecy. and, And John the Baptist says to all these people crowded around him, look. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Lamb of God, the one who will be sacrificed to take away the sin of the world. That's that's reference to what's been happening since Genesis chapter 3, right? The sin of the world. And when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he proved that Luke and John and the others were right. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he proves that he is the chosen one. The resurrection is Jesus' ultimate evidence that he can overcome sin and death and that he is indeed the saviour of the world. And those people who saw the resurrection were absolutely convinced. I mean, they, they saw him die. They actually saw him on the cross. They saw his his beaten, broken, dead body taken down from the cross, put in a grave, absolutely dead. And they saw him alive again. And they were convinced, they were absolutely convinced that Jesus was the saviour of the world, that not even death could stop him. And they just wanted to tell everyone. Because some people thought they were crazy, right? 
No one raises themselves from the dead. There were odd stories about people raising other people from the dead with some sort of you know, magic arts. But you can't raise yourself from the dead. That doesn't happen. And I mean, the saviour of the world, everyone knew that this Jesus guy, that he was just a poor carpenter from some country town. But that's not, that's not the saviour of the world, right? When, when God sends the saviour of the world, it's not going to be that. People thought they were nuts. Listen to what Paul says when he writes a letter to a church 20-some years after the resurrection. Listen to what he says to the people who thought they were nuts. 2 Corinthians 5, I'm going to begin reading at uh, verse 14. Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new, excuse me, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though Christ were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul's saying, we can't help it. We can't stop. Christ's love compels us. Verse 14, we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised from saying, We're absolutely convinced that Jesus, I mean, we all know that he lived. It was only 20 years ago. We're absolutely convinced that, that after he died, because we all know he died, we're absolutely convinced that he was raised again. And that, that proves that he is the saviour of the world, that in his rising, he beats death and that we can all have that same resurrection life. We're absolutely convinced of that, he says. Verse 18, God reconciled us to himself through Christ. Reconciled literally means to, to be reconciled, to come back together. You know, it's like in school when you have a bust up with your friends. I know, girls, this happens every single day, right? You know, you have, a, you have a drama with your friends and all of a sudden you and your friends, you're not friends anymore, right? You split, you're separated and you don't answer each other's texts and you don't hang out at lunchtime and, and you know, you don't look at each other. You can't sit next to each other in class, right? That, that's kind of like what sin did for us and God, right? We were, we, were, we were sort of separated that way, you know, ghosting each other, Right? But then Jesus provides us a way to be reconciled. You know, in the school, there's always then the girl that gets between the two girls and brings them back together and, and they have a chat. And she, you know, like this is the, I'm, I'm joking, but this is the picture of reconciliation. Right? Is that moment at the end of the day when you go, we're all good again. We're mates again. I'm going round to her house after school because we're all good again. We've been reconciled. And Paul's saying that Jesus provides us a way 
to be reconciled with God. God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's reconciled us and now we've got a job to share that reconciliation with the rest of the world. That God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. Again, repeated words, reconciled, reconciled, reconciled. You get the point he's trying to make? Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. We've talked about this before. The, I mean, we have ambassadors today. Australia has an ambassador in Indonesia. They are the representative of the Australian people, the Australian government, the Australian laws and values and culture in Indonesia. We are now the ambassadors of God in this world. We are representatives of his truth. We are representatives of his way of life. We are representatives of his message, of his person in this world. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you then. We implore, we don't use the word implore. I'm desperate, right? We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Please, please, please. Take up the free offer that God's making to you. We're convinced that Jesus lived and died and was resurrected. We're, we're convinced that because of this, people can now be reconciled with God. That problem that we've had since way back there in Genesis chapter 3, we've got the ultimate solution and it's Jesus. People can now be reconciled with God. That sin thing that ruined the perfect relationship that we had between people and God, Jesus has fixed that whole thing. And we can now be reconciled to God. And he's given us the ministry, the message of reconciliation. He says, as though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Paul desperately wants everyone to hear this message. He writes another letter to the church in Rome and he's talking about the same, this same sort of thing to them and he says, how then can they, being people out in the world, how then can the world believe the one of whom they have not heard? How can they believe in Jesus if they haven't heard about Jesus? And he says, and how can they hear without someone preaching to them? It's Romans 10 verse 14. How can the world know Jesus if they don't hear about Jesus? And how can they hear about Jesus if people don't tell them about Jesus? We have this life-changing, world-changing news and people won't hear about it unless we tell them, Paul says. And I'll tell you, friends, that's why we share faith. Sharing faith starts with understanding that God loves the world so much that he hatched a plan to reconcile the world, this messed up world, back to himself. And Jesus is the, is the ultimate solution. He's the, he's the sharp end of that plan. And Jesus now offers the opportunity for every person no matter what they've done, no matter what they're doing, no matter how young or old they are, no matter the colour of their skin, no matter their sexuality, no matter anything, 
God offers the opportunity for every human being on the planet to be reconciled to God. That's what sharing your faith is all about. Sharing your faith isn't about recruiting people to the church. You know, like you would recruit people to a football club. You know, you'd put out signs and say, you want to play football? Come to our club and play football. And you might have a come and try event where people could come and have a kick and meet people in the club and there's always a free sausage sizzle because it's a footy club and that's what you do. A footy club, you have a free sausage sizzle. You know, and you're trying to get people into the club because you want the club to keep going and it needs people in the club. That's not what sharing your faith is all about. It's not about recruiting people to the church. It's not about, it's not about trying to get people to think the way you think about things like you would for a, a political issue or a social issue. You know, like, a, like pick a social issue like, you know, single-use plastic bags. You know, some people are really fired up about that and, and you know, they, they want to show you pictures of the Pacific Ocean with a massive, you know, pile of rubbish in it the size of a small island that, and they want to explain that, that when you throw a piece of plastic in the, in the ground out here, it washes into the drain and that washes into the big drain and that goes into the sea and, you know, it's killing wildlife and this stuff uh, takes a thousand years to degrade. You know the story, right? And, and you're communicating all that because you want people to think about single-use plastic the way you do. You want them to join your way of thinking. That's not what sharing your faith is about. In fact, sharing your faith isn't about you at all. Sharing your faith is simply about offering people an opportunity to deal with the sin and the mess in their own life, to be reconciled to God and to enter into a new kind of life. Paul calls it, I don't know if you picked it up, in, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about being a new creation. He says it's such a change in your life to be reconciled to God. It's as if it's, as if it's a brand new creation. In fact, Jesus will use the phrase, it's like being born again. That's why we share our faith. Now, I want to take a risk here and get a little bit personal. Because I wonder, and this isn't Bible talk, this is Matt talk, but I wonder if the reason some of us are reluctant to share our faith is because we've never really experienced that new creation life for ourselves. We've never had a moment where we've stopped and realised that my life is a mess. That actually I can't do this on my own. I need help. On my own, I'm hopeless. I need a saviour. Because if you've never experienced that for yourself, well, you can't share it with anyone else. And I'm not being critical when I say any of that because I lived like that when I was growing up. I grew up thinking I was a pretty decent person. I wasn't brilliant, but I was okay. I mean, a lot of people out there who are worse than me, right? That's how I grew up thinking. And I grew up thinking that God was real. I believed that God had good things to say about my life. You know, I believed that in the Bible there were, there were good messages and, and good moral things that if I followed, that would probably make me an even better person. I even believed that God could answer prayers sometimes. You know, I, I, I kind of believed that God was alive and would do that. 
I went to church. I even liked it sometimes. I got involved in all the, all the churchy stuff, you know, the things that you do when you're around a church. But I never realised how hopeless and helpless and lost I really was on the inside. I never realised that I needed a saviour. I thought I was doing okay, and if I believed in God, it could make me a little bit better. I didn't need to be saved. I wasn't doing drugs or I wasn't, you know, had a big alcohol problem or anything. And some people do, and I'm, but, you know, that wasn't my story. But I needed to be saved from myself. I needed to be saved from my desire to be in control of my life. I need to be saved from my desperation to have things my way. To do things and for the world to do things the way that I want them to be done, for the world to be the way that I want it to be. And at that stage in my life, I never wanted to share my faith. Because honestly, I didn't have a faith worth sharing. And so maybe some of you today are like I was, and the first step that you need to take in sharing your faith is to simply admit the mess that you are. Because in case you're not sure, you're a mess, right? I, can, if, I don't know you, but I know that much about you, right? Because you're a human and we're a mess. I don't mean nothing's going right in your life, but we're a mess, aren't we? Maybe the first thing you need to do is to put your hand up and say, I can't do this on my own. I need a saviour. Because the world around us is always saying, you're okay. You're a good person. You know, go live life your way. But deep down, most of us, I think, if we're really honest, know that that's not true. Most of us live with the fear and the anxiety and the uncertainty and the sin of just being a broken, fallen human. And the first step in sharing our faith for most of us is to have the courage to wave the white flag and to say, I give up. I give up trying to do life on my own. I recognise that I need a saviour. I need some way to fix the mess that I just can't get myself out of, no matter how well I try and no matter how good I think I am. I'm a mess and I need a saviour. We're going to spend the next couple of weeks talking about how we share this faith. And as I said before, we're going to do that really practically. But there's no point talking about the how if we haven't got a hold of the why. Does that make sense? Sharing faith is not about us. It's not about recruitment. It's not about pressuring anyone to believe what we believe, to do what we do, to think like we think. We share our faith because we believe that Jesus is the one. We believe that the world is a mess. We're all a mess, not other people, us included, that we're all a mess. And that Jesus is the one, that he 
offers us a chance to deal with the sin and the mess in our lives and to be made brand new. To literally like, be spiritually born again into a new and wonderful and eternal life with him. And we just want every person on the planet to hear that message. We want every person on the planet to have an opportunity to join us in this new and amazing life. Friends, that's why we share our faith. And we have to get that why before we start talking about the how. 